0: So this Christmas season, we tr- you know, Christmas comes around every year, right? So every year as a church, we focus in on Christmas. And to, to try to make it fresh is really hard. And I don't think we're trying to always make it fresh. Um, but I, I think the angle that we want to take this particular Christmas season is the angle of what it means, what are the implications of God being with us. The Bible says that when Jesus came into the flesh, when he was really? born... Um, of the Virgin Mary and and all of the Christmas stories that we know and love, Um, what happened in that is that God tangibly, physically, and literally became one of his creatures and came to live with them. The the apostle John in his gospel says that he he came to dwell with us. And that word dwell actually comes from the word for tabernacle. And so if you know anything about the Old Testament tabernacle, um, it was a temporary worship space. It was like a big tent that people went to church in, and it was the space that God's presence was, uh, was seen and experienced in the people of Israel. And so the tabernacle was that temporary set up and tear down as they were wandering through the wilderness. uh, They would take it up, uh, they'd put it up when they would camp, and they would take it down when they'd go somewhere else. But that was the, the representation of God's presence with his people. What John tells us is that when Jesus came to dwell among his people, he is tabernacling, he's actually setting up his tent with us. Um in the, in the message version of, of the Bible, uh, it's a trans, it's a trans uh, well, it's like a paraphrase. It's not a translation. But a guy named Eugene Peterson wrote the message and, and kind of tried to make the Bible speak in modern language. And in that particular passage, I like how he says it. He just says that God came and he moved into the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, that's not a technical, uh, you know, it's not the technical meaning of the Greek words, but it does get to the heart of the meaning. That God moved into the neighborhood, that he's a part of this. And so we're looking at what that means and how that actually plays out. Um, so last week, we explored the most foundational issue in, that, in this, which is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. That, this, that the sins that separated us from God are, are what he ultimately came to deal with and address and, and ultimately conquer through his life, death, and resurrection so that we would be right with him. And that's what we saw last week. But today I think I want to just take another look at something else that Jesus does for us. And there's a lot of things that Jesus and his presence is for us. Um, And we're only going to be able to look at a few of them this this month before we get to Christmas. So the the next one I want to talk about is this word empathy. Um, That Jesus came to sympathize, to really empathize with his people. Uh, Empathy is interesting. It's, It's a pretty... New word, actually. I've, I just learned this this morning because I was looking at the dictionary, and uh, it, it has all kinds of history on words and stuff. It's very fascinating. Empathy didn't come around into the English language until the 1800s, which, of course, was a long time ago you know, from where we stand, but it really isn't that long ago. Um, and sympathy is a much older word. But these two words do have some slight differences in meaning. And we tend to think of sympathy... Uh, and we use sympathy and empathy interchangeably, we, and that's okay, I suppose. But technically, they are different. Um, so here's what sympathy is. Sympathy is the ability to feel pity for someone in their hurt, right? That they're hurting, something hard is going on, and you feel for them. You, you feel bad for them. You, 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 you can sympathize with that, right? Um, but, but empathy is different. Empathy is actually the ability to understand someone else's pain not just feel bad for them in their pain from a distance, but to actually know what it's like to go through what they're going through. And you and I know that this is uh, radically different. When you go through something really hard and you meet another human person who's gone through that hard thing too, there is a connection that you have with that person. Right, whatever it is, I mean, fill in the blank of whatever hurts you have um, and you find another person who is not just feeling hurt for you, which is what all of us should do, whether we understand each other in a in a real, actual, you know, experiential way or not. All of us should feel sympathetic to people who are hurting. Uh, but those who actually can understand it because they've lived it, there's a different connection there. There just is. I think we all appreciate when people are sympathetic to us, when we're going through hard things, they, they, they extend a listening ear, they, they hug us, they care for us. But when you meet that person who's been, who can say, I did that too, or I've been there too, or I lost that too, then, then there's a whole different thing. And that's really what Jesus did for us, is he doesn't just feel bad for us from a distance, he lived our pain he lived exactly the human experience that we live. And he actually lived a far worse one than any of us do. But because of that, he can actually empathize with us. And, and so whatever you're going through, and, and here's the thing that I, I kind of find frustrating about Christmas, <clears throat> just the, the holiday manifestation of christmas is that it's all like happy clappy and elves and and you know holly and mistletoe and and it gets really irritating when you're not in a great place and so some of you might be in a great place and so the holly jolly christmas is you know wonderful and you love that song and you'll clap along and but you may not be in that place and so what I want to do is not just to be De- Debbie Downer here, but to really encourage you that if you are struggling, if you are suffering, if you are hurting this Christmas season, that Jesus is there with you. He's lived it. He knows it. He's experienced it. <clears throat> from, from the start to finish of Jesus' life, there was suffering, there was pain, there was rejection, there was loss. And all of us can relate to that on one level or another, Um, but Jesus can sympathize and really empathize with us in all of those things because he experienced it. So I want to show you two different examples of this from the Christmas story itself. Um, In the Christmas story, we have divided up between Matthew's account and Luke's account. And so we have we've got to look at a couple of these passages, one in Luke and one in Matthew, to see kind of the totality of the Christmas story. But, but really, as, as you know, cute and you know, Christmassy as we make this stuff out to be, it really is a story of, of pain and loss and suffering, even from the beginning. And so I want to show you that. <clears throat> and then uh, I want to take us to some other passages that connect all this. So look at uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 1 through 7. It's a very familiar passage uh, around this time of year. And if you've never been to church before to hear it, you've probably watched the the, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special and you've heard these words there um, because these are the words that (coughs) that he reads. Uh, So here's what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And so let's just get that into perspective here. Um, Israel the, at the time that Jesus was born was under the rule of the Roman Empire. The Romans had come into to Jerusalem in about AD oh, they came in, in 80 70 to totally destroyed I'm sorry before that uh, they they had conquered them through some military battles they brought it into the Roman Empire um, and so Jesus's entire life from beginning to end uh, Israel was under Roman occupation and rule and so Caesar in Rome decides he wants to find out all the people in his empire uh, as much as he can so he calls this census uh, he ca- calls for people to be registered so that they can be taxed properly and identified and all that stuff. And so everybody's got to travel to where their hometown was, to where their family's from, uh, to where they were originally, um, you know, stemming from. So in verse 4, it says, So Joseph also went up from Galilee. So he was living in Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, north of Jerusalem, from the town of Nazareth to Judea. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is a little small town outside of Jerusalem. About I, I want to say, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. And so they traveled, you know, down south uh, towards um, towards Bethlehem. <clears throat> and he went to Bethlehem because he's from the town or from the uh, family of David. So he went from Galilee to. Now, we're so familiar with this story that I think we, in some ways, we lose what's actually happening here. If you think about what's happening, uh, Joseph and Mary, and Mary is pregnant and very pregnant. Um, This is not the ideal time for them to be traveling anywhere, but they have to. And so they go together to to Bethlehem. uh, And as she's there, they, they have to give birth. They get, you know, babies come on their time frame, right? So the, here this baby's being born and it says that she gave birth to him, wrapped him up and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In other words, if you, if you understand what a manger is, and most of you do, a manger is a feeding trough for, for barn animals. It's, it's not anywhere ideal that you would put a baby brand, brand new into the world. There's no crib here. There's no nursery here. There's no, uh, there doesn't even seem to be a whole lot of care being provided. They are in a barn giving birth to a baby because there's no place for them in the inn. Now, here's the other thing we got to realize is that we're not talking about the holiday inn we're not talking about the super eights. They didn't have those. When, when we see the inn, what we're really talking about is the, is the guest rooms of their family's homes. So what's happening here is astounding. Mary and Joseph get down to Joseph's families, you know, his cousins, aunts, uncles, maybe even his parents. I mean, we don't know all the relatives that he has in this town, but he knows some people. This is his, this is his hometown, this is where he's from. And he gets there, and no one is willing to let them stay with them. And they really force Mary and Joseph to have their baby in a barn outside and, and have nowhere to put that baby except in a manger in a feeding trough. That's not a warm welcome to the world, is it? Jesus was not warmly received from the moment he was born. He was rejected. He was, he was denied comfort. He was, he was forced to be outside with the animals. And you, many of you guys have animals. You know they don't smell good, right? They don't, they're not clean. It's not, it's not a, a sterile hospital room that we are so familiar with. This is a really, this is not a cute story. Like, I mean, we make it cute. You know, we get the little figurines, and we, that's fine. You can put the figurines out. I'm not trying to shame you for that. <clears throat> I'm just saying, it's, it's like not a cute story. At, at, at the end of this, it's a really sad story that Jesus would, would be the king of glory who was not even welcome to, to be born in someone's home that he was forced to be out in a manger, that that was where he was welcomed into the world. And nobody came to see him. In fact, we know that uh, as we continue to read, uh, we're not going to read all of Luke 2 here, but as you continue to read the story, you, you, the next scene that you see is a bunch of shepherds out in their field at night, and the shepherds are significant because shepherds had a terrible reputation. They were, not, they were pretty low in the social standing of things. They, didn't have a, they were not respectable. Uh, it wasn't a respectable profession to be a shepherd. And these were the shepherds that were watching the flock at night, which means they probably weren't even the owners of the flock. They were just hired people because the owner's probably not going to stay up all night watching his sheep, so he hires people to do it. And so here you have this group of people that then the angels, this this amazing chorus of angels show up and proclaim the birth of Jesus to these guys and encourage them to go and to welcome Jesus into the world. Jesus was not welcomed into the world by anyone of prestige or anyone of importance, anyone of anything. He had his mom and his dad and he had a bunch of shepherds show up to see him. And and, and on one hand, that's a beautiful thing because it means that Jesus came for people who are not impressive. And he chose to announce his birth first to the people who were not impressive. But it's also a sad thing because Jesus did not have the loved ones around him. He didn't have the care that he deserved. He didn't have any of the fanfare that should have accompanied his birth. He came in humility and brokenness and he entered into this world experiencing the pain of loss, rejection, and and suffering from the moment he was born. Then then when you look over at Matthew, if you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 2, and here we see another dimension of the story. It actually comes a little bit later in Jesus' life, perhaps a, a year and a half or two years later. And this is the story about the wise men. Um, most of you, again, if you've been around church during the holidays, you you know about the wise men and all of this, and <clears throat> that's great. Um, and here's the thing. Uh, in this story, in Matthew chapter 2, um, he doesn't really, Matthew doesn't spend any time talking about the actual birth of Jesus or anything like that. He just skips from the announcement that Jesus will be born and then immediately goes into, okay, Jesus has been born, now what happens? And so Luke sort of fills in the in-between between these two, these two things. Um, and, and here's what happens. Look at verse one of chapter two. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is fascinating. Uh, It really is because here you have no one from Israel aside from this group of shepherds and Jesus's immediate family who have any care or concern for Jesus being born. But Matthew says that there's these group, this group of guys, perhaps three guys, um, maybe a, an envoy of, of men, who, who knows. But these three wise men from the East, from the East, they were not from Israel. We don't know where they were from exactly. We don't have any clear uh, teaching on that. But we know that they came from a a nation far away. And they came, here they come, and it says that we saw his star when it rose. These people, however they found out about Jesus, uh, knew enough to be looking for him, to pay attention to him. And when they saw the star that God had shown them was the star that they needed to pay attention to, when they saw that star, they came, and they came to worship him. The, this, this is amazing because these are Gentiles; these are not people who are Jewish, and they were not in Israel. And so here's this amazing thing: and they come to Herod. King Herod was. Um, I mean, we call him Herod the King in the Bible, but he wasn't. Te- he was technically a king, sort of, but he was really more of a puppet king, uh, who was underneath. Uh, the the emperor uh, the emperor in in Rome essentially wanted somebody on the ground who could kind of help out with things and, and so Herod was just kind of his his puppet um, but here we have these guys they come to him and they ask the question where is he and they're assuming that Herod would know <laughs> and they're assuming that he would actually be in Herod's house and, and they go to Herod's house and they this, this is how it goes in verse 3 When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod troubled? Well, because to Herod, in Herod's mind, this this king of the Jews who was born in Bethlehem uh, was a threat to his power. And so he's troubled, and all the people in Jerusalem that evidently hear about this are troubled as well. And so verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod didn't even know where Jesus was to be born. He, he wasn't uh, familiar enough with his Bible to know this. So he gets all the people who are in charge of teaching the Bible uh, and what, what they had of the Bible at that point in time. And he asked them, uh, where is this child supposed to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea because it is written in the prophet, by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here is the Old Testament promise that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and they knew that that was the promise. And so it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So you all know what's going on here, right? Herod is trying to figure out where Jesus is so he can kill him. He doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to kill Jesus. Jesus was born and from... Basically, within the first couple years of his life, he's a marked man, and and he want people the people in power want him dead. And so God tells these these men, uh, no, you're not going to go back to Herod and tell him where Jesus is. Go go home a different way, and so they do. They obey the Lord's word through the dream. And then it says this, verse 13, Now when when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then it says, And then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men what a psycho, right? I mean, this is like, this is, this is the Christmas story that we never talk about. <laughs> the fact that Herod goes on this murderous rampage and kills all the two-year-olds and under that are boys in Bethlehem and the area. This is psychotic. But this is the world that Jesus was born in. And Jesus was protected by the Lord because the sovereign hand of God <clears throat> protected him from, from all the danger that he, you know, he, he wasn't protected from suffering, right? He suffered. He suffered. He suffered loss. Jesus had to leave his home. He had to go live in Egypt. They had to be refugees in Egypt for who knows how long. How, we don't know how many years they spent in Egypt. We know that they stayed there until Herod died. So who knows how long that was. And it says in verse. 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Um, And then it says, when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be a Nazarene. This is an amazing thing. Throughout all of this, you see, people are going after Jesus, and and God sends Jesus to Egypt so that the, the word of God could be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. How could that have been true if Jesus had not gone to Egypt and then come back? Right? And then, How could Jesus have been called a Nazarene if he had stayed and lived in Bethlehem his whole life? He couldn't have been. So all of these things, all this human history is being worked out by God for God's glory and for his purposes. It's an amazing comfort. But what I don't want you to miss in all of this is that Jesus suffered at the beginning of his life and it never got any better. It never got better. He was rejected and despised. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus, in, in beginning his ministry, goes first to Nazareth. The first place he preached was Nazareth. And Nazareth, his hometown, the people that he grew up with, the people that he lived among, the, they knew him. And, and they were a part of the same worshiping body. They went to the same synagogue. All these, he goes to that synagogue, he preaches a sermon about himself being their savior and they rejected him outright. They just rejected him. Jesus was rejected by people. He you, you and I know how it feels to be rejected because we've all been to middle school. So, you you know you know that at least and maybe it's gotten worse since middle school. I don't know. But Jesus can empathize with your rejection. You and I have felt the pain of loss. Jesus the pain of loss. Jesus suffered. He endured pain. You and I suffer and endure pain. We we can uh, understand each other because we all have a fairly common experience as human beings. We don't have all the identical things that we go through, but we can understand each other. And Jesus, more than any of us, can understand what we're going through. And so when we say Jesus is God with us, what we're talking about here is that Jesus has a a firsthand knowledge of our pain and he can understand it and he can comfort us in it. Let me take you to some passages that teach this. Um, You don't have to turn to any of these. We're just going to flip through a, a lot here. But John 16, 33, Jesus says, this to his disciples i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world jesus is telling his disciples in the context there that life is going to be terrible <laughs> it's going to be hard and yeah there's glimmers of good things too of course right it's not we're not all job right uh, thankfully, but but we we all understand that in the world we will have not we might have but we will have trouble tribulation. But take heart, he says. Be comforted in this. I have overcome the world. Jesus is our comfort because even though we walk through trouble, he walks with us through it. Second Corinthians thirteen, three through five. Paul writes these words to the Corinthian church. He says, Jesus is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves—that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul's saying this that Jesus was crucified in weakness. Right? There's there's nothing more weak than than a broken, dying man on a cross. This is why the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. Because what we as Christians assert is that we worship a crucified God. This is this is who became man, right? God, this God-man Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he wasn't just crucified in weakness. He is powerful because he lives by the power of God. He was raised by God's power. He's alive. But then Paul says this, but we are weak in him. We're weak. We struggle with trust in Christ. We struggle with our faith. We doubt. We, we wonder if God has all this under control. We are weak, but it says, in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. The, the beauty of what Paul's saying here is this, that yes, Christians can be weak in, and be in Jesus at the same time. You can be weak and be in Christ. But what the body of Christ does as we come together, as we gather with each other, is we bring the strength of Jesus through the gospel to one another in our times of weakness. And then he closes that paragraph with this question. Do you you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? This, This God who was crucified in weakness but raised in power and lives by the power of God, he's in you. And so you can minister to one another as you have, as they have, need. Then we get to the book of Hebrews, and I've got just two passages in Hebrews that go hand in hand. And um, I came across this in Hebrews 2, 16 through eighteen earlier this week, um, and it, it's just it, it just fits perfectly with with what we're talking about here. Here's what it says: For surely, it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of. Abraham, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now that's Hebrews 2, and then we'll see Hebrews 4. Well, before we get to Hebrews 4, let me me just highlight this, where it says "He he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. When Jesus took on flesh, he didn't take on some superhuman thing. He became like you and me. He experienced the weaknesses that we experience. In every possible way, Jesus understands you because he was made to be like you. He, he, he took on the flesh of one of his creatures. And he did that so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest who could forgive us of our sins. And then it says, because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Then in verse 4, he kind of picks up on this idea again. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's a reference to him becoming a person. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, in my translation, but empathize is probably the more accurate word in English, to empathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who can't understand us. We have one who perfectly can, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was tempted to sin as furiously as you and I are tempted to sin, but he never gave into it. That's what makes him different from us. He had the power of God fully and completely because he is God. He is divine and human. And so he resisted temptation perfectly, but he went through it nonetheless. And here's the important thing to remember. Being tempted is not the sin. Giving in to temptation is the sin. A lot of times we think, oh man, I'm being tempted. I'm, I'm, I must not be a good Christian. No, you're being tempted because you love Jesus and Satan hates that. So he wants you to stumble. And so be, be comforted in that. Like The fact that you're experiencing temptation isn't the problem. Jesus experienced it and was perfect. The problem is when we give in to our flesh and decide, you know, what I want is better than what Jesus wants. That's where it becomes a problem. And that's what Jesus never did. He never gave in to sin. And so, so what's the concluding thought that the author of Hebrews gives us in light of that? Here it is. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus can empathize with you. And what that means practically is this, that we can draw near to him with confidence because we know he's been through what we're going through. There's no temptation that he he didn't experience that we're experiencing. Nothing is new to us that wasn't experienced by him. And so we can go to him, and what we will find when we go to him is mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Whatever you are facing today, whatever it is, whether it's a temptation, whether it's loss, whether it's hurt, whether it's suffering, whatever it is, you can draw near to Jesus because he understands you. He's been through it. He's experienced all that you have. But there's another tangible thing we need to talk about. Because Jesus tells us through his word that, it's, that it's, we can always draw near to him. But he also gives us his body, the church, here and now. The church is the tangible outworking of Jesus' body in the world. Let me just read you one more verse. It says, uh, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we, the church, ought to lay down our lives for the brothers fellow members of the church. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, John is making this point that we try to make all the time here, that gospel doctrine, what we believe Jesus did for us, leads to gospel culture, how we live with each other. I've been banging that drum for two years and I'm going to continue to do that because that's where the rubber meets the road. It's not enough to just believe that Jesus died for us. We also have to live in light of the fact that Jesus died. Died for us. And that's exactly how John connects this, right? We, this is how we know love. Jesus died for you. That's how you know what love is. You look to Jesus. That's the definition of love. In his death on the cross, he shows us love. So we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Now, that doesn't mean we literally crucify ourselves for each other. Here's what it means He it defines what it means. It means if you have the means to help somebody and you don't, you're not loving Jesus the way you ought. If you know someone has a need and you're closing your heart to that, and I think, by the way, needs here can be broader than just material needs. Certainly they are material needs, right? If you have the world's goods, that's material. But I think needs can be deeper than that too. It can be emotional, it can be spiritual. But if you see someone has, who has a need and you close your heart against them, how can you say God's love is in you? Because Jesus shows us what love is by pouring out his life for us. So what is a little bit of time compared to that? What's a little bit of our time to help a brother or sister in need compared to what Jesus gave gave to us? What's a little bit of money to help somebody who's fallen behind and struggling to make ends meet? What is that compared to what Jesus gave to us? know what, you can just keep going. Like what, anything that we give will pale in comparison to what Jesus gave. But the point is this, that Jesus gave us everything he had so we can give and help those in need. And this is the time of year where we start to think about that, but it's not just a Christmas time thing. It's an all the time thing. We should always be willing to help people in need. I know this is the season where we start to think about that because it's it's inundated in all the movies and everything that we watch. And uh, Christmas Carol, you know, it's all about this guy who's cranky and, and rich and stubborn. And then he, he starts to help out his, his poor employee and the, his son who's hurt, right? You guys have all seen that. I hope I didn't spoil that story for you. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the point, right? We, have, well, we shouldn't just be about that in December. We should be about that all the time because the church is the body of Christ working to, to serve and love each other as Jesus served and loved us. But nonetheless, I will say this. Here, here's one application that you can take away. Um, there are people in our church that that need help. There are. They may, be, they may be too embarrassed to say that. They may not want to say that that you know we, we do, and I, I get this completely because I'm the same way. You just don't want to admit that you need help. It's okay. But here's the thing. As a pastor, as elders, we hear about people that need help. And we want to be able to help them. And so if, if you want to be able to help us help them, um, you can give to the benevolence fund that we have. We have some money that we budget for this, but there's always need for more. So just if you want to put action to this, you can do that. You don't have to. There's no pressure to do that. Um, but if if you want to be able to tangibly help people who need help, and we hear about it a lot throughout the year, um, we would love to do that. And so you, you, can, um, you can give to that, if, you know, if it's above and beyond your regular giving, that's great. You know, obviously a lot of what we have, we, we try to give out and help out with as much as we can, um, but there's always need. There's always need. And, and we hear about it, and people come to us in confidence, and they, like, we're not here to broadcast everybody's stuff. Um, we, we want to keep that confidential, and we, we take that very seriously. But, but as the body of Christ, we can help. We can help, and we will do everything we can to help. But if you feel, uh, if you don't know specifically a way to help, and maybe you do, and that's where you can, you can go personally into that. If you don't have that opportunity, then you can help the church uh, do that as well. So just a couple things to think about. Again, no pressure, but here's the point. The point is not just about dropping some money in a box. Um, The point is looking around the world, around uh, the people around us, I should say, and seeing what the needs are and then tangibly trying to meet those needs through our time, through our treasures, through our talents, whatever it might be, that we love as Jesus loved. Because he loved us and empathizes with us, so we should be able and willing to do the same. So, with that said, with that encouragement, let me pray for us, and then we'll sing a few songs in response and partake of the Lord's table to, together. Father, we thank you uh, that you have sent Jesus into the world, that you made him to become like us in every respect. In every way, he's like us. He's not sinful, but he understands everything about us, and he can meet us in that need. We pray that we would lean deeply into you, Jesus. We pray that we would also tangibly be your body among one another, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.